0: Church, it's good to be with you this morning. Um, I know um, it has been a long time. Um, we've done a couple of Zoom calls with some people, and every time we get on, it's like, man, I miss these people. So I miss you. I miss having you here. I miss it being able to interact with you while, we, while I, I preach, while we sing together and all those good things. Um, but uh, this this it, it, this momentary affliction, right? It's a momentary affliction and at some point we'll be back in the room together again and when we are back in that room, it is going to be amazing. So I'm really looking forward to it. Today is our third week of streaming online. We've made some changes. Hopefully you are noticing it steadily improving throughout the weeks, uh, but we're continuing to work with it, see what we can do. Uh, today, uh, my audience has gotten smaller and smaller uh every week today it's me alone nobody else here at all um so i'm gonna laugh at my jokes i don't know if you will hopefully you will <laughs> take your bibles go to mark chapter 14 we're gonna spend a little time in mark chapter 14 um before we get into that let me let me throw this at you one of the things that we uh, often ask like, do, do you know somebody do you really truly know somebody and I want to be careful not to um, get confused with what we mean when we say, do you know somebody? It's not just, do you know of someone or do you know about someone? Do you really know someone? So I've used this story before, but it, but it's, it's a true event. And so I'm going to use it again. Stephanie and I, 25 years ago, got married. It's crazy, 25 years ago. But 25 years ago, got married. We went to New York City. Or part of our honeymoon, and part of our week that week was we went and we saw Phantom of the Opera on Broadway. Well, we got into the Broadway theater and got our seats, and as we were seated, um, at the bottom of the theater there was a small crowd that was kind of in a, in a big mumble-jumble. I mean, they are all excited about stuff. I don't know what mumble-jumble is. Just, just bear with it. I'm alone, remember? So um, <laughs> they, uh, this, this small crowd was kind of walking towards the bottom and then kind of walking up the stairs towards us. And it was obvious that something had happened, or something was happening, and Stephanie was sitting next to me, and, and I looked and, oh my word, it, it's Billy Joel. The reason people are excited, because Billy Joel was at the Phantom, and he was making his way up towards us. And, and uh, my wife, Stephanie, looked at me and said, who is that? I said, it's Billy Joel. And, and I know, this is, who's Billy Joel? But how could you not know who Billy Joel is? So I'm trying to explain to her, without him hearing me, because he's right over here, who he is. So I'm like, you know, Billy Joel. You know, like, Uptown Girl! You no, know, nothing um we didn't start the fire, nothing didn't just did, it didn't connect. And so that's and, and interesting is I, I knew who he was. I probably didn't don't know him, but I knew who he was. I mean I didn't ask him to sign my Bible after he sat next to me at Phantom of the Opera or anything. when the same question Stephanie asked me is, who is that? Is, is similar to the question that Jesus asked his disciples back in Mark chapter 8. Uh, Patrick handled that text really well. Uh, not from the Walmarts, mind you. Uh, he did it from the pulpit. Um, but uh, uh, Jesus asked the disciples, so, so who do you say I am? Who, who do you say I am? What, what's your answer? Who is he? And so what I, what I want you to do this morning as we walk through a story is, is kind of answer that question. Who do you say Jesus is? Who is Jesus? Now, now, please understand. I can't be who is Jesus to you, because there, there's a that the, the answer when that happens, when you remove all absolute truth from the answer, you just go, "This is the way I take him to be." You end up with a gazillion different answers. You you can see that throughout our culture. You look at how movies portray Jesus. There are more than a hundred movies that have been written about Jesus, and they run the gamut. I mean, there, there's a huge difference between the movies. You've got stuff like the Passion. Which came out a few years ago. Then you get to uh, the Da Vinci Code, which is loosely about Jesus, very, very loosely about Jesus. But then you even get to this this other weird one called Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter. I mean, all of those are based and built upon people's perceptions. But he's not the God-man. Mormons would say that Jesus isn't eternal God. He's actually the half-brother of Lucifer. Uh, Deepak Chopra would say Christ is is a state of consciousness that we all hope to attain. Scientologists. Scientologists say that Jesus never existed in reality. But instead, about 75 million years ago, um, uh, an alien ruler of the galactic confederacy named Xenu implanted in our collective memory the idea of Jesus. So we know they're crazy. Okay, so Buddha. <laughs> um, the Buddhists believe that uh, Jesus was enlightened much like Buddha was. Hindus believe that he was enlightened like Krishna, if he's, if he's God. Well, he's just a god, one of a million gods. Muslims say that Jesus was a man and a prophet just less than Muhammad. You go back a couple of years and you see Fidel Castro making the claim that Jesus was the original communist. You've got Mikhail Gorbachev saying that Jesus was the first socialist. And then this one, probably the most disturbing, says this. This is a quote, and then I'll tell you who said it. You'll be able to pick up on it by the end of the quote. In boundless love as a Christian and as a man... I read how terrific was Jesus' fight against the Jewish poison. See, Hitler made the claim that Jesus was a Nazi. I mean, in today's society, Jesus is cool in a trendy sort of way. He's our homeboy. Um, Maybe he... He is the example, the ultimate example, of what it looks like to live a morally responsible and socially conscientious way of life. You know, feed the poor, love your enemies, all those different things. The problem is our answer about who Jesus is can't be based on how we want to view him. It has to be on who he actually is. So who do you say Jesus is? Who do Christians say that Jesus is? We will say that he's the promised Messiah, the Son of Man who was promised to us in Daniel chapter 7. Um, he's the one who was before Abraham, the one who is the great I Am. He's the sinless Son of God. He's the only way to heaven. John 14 tells us that. He's the, the cornerstone of our life. And then and the good news is those are all right answers. But the question remains, do you really know him? Or do you just know about him? I mean, I, I didn't know Billy Joel. I just knew about him. But knowing about him is not the same as knowing him. And really knowing Jesus is what today's all about. And we read a story about a woman who really knows Jesus. And it was demonstrated in her choices. Let's look. Romans, i uh, sorry, Mark. I don't know where Romans came from. Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 3. We'll, we'll kind of work our way through the story. I will certainly pause a number of times. Um, so Mark 14, verse 3, says this. While well, Jesus was in Bethany, at the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, all right, stopping right there, okay, got all three things right out of the gate that we have to actually uh, engage with here. So so Jesus, actually four things, Jesus is in Bethany, Bethany is about a mile and a half to two miles away from Jerusalem. It seems that uh, Bethany is kind of Jesus and the disciples' uh, home base during this Passion Week. So so they're actually staying in Bethany, and that that wasn't too unusual during the Passover. The Passover, Jerusalem's um, uh, not attendance census population, there we go, uh, would grow five or six times what it was normally. So it would just be packed with people, and so instead of staying in Jerusalem, most people would stay in the outskirts. Bethany would have been one of those places, and and Jesus was in Bethany a a number of times during the, the Passion Week, and this is just... One of those times. Interesting, it says he's having a meal at the house of Simon the leper. Now, I'm guessing, it's probably a safe guess, that he didn't still have leprosy. Uh, The reason he was called Simon the leper probably was that he originally, or at some point, had suffered with leprosy, but Jesus had healed him. Uh, There's a parallel account to Mark chapter 14. It's found in John chapter 12. And in John 12, it names some more of the characters. And so what we can find from uh, John's telling of the story is that the disciples were there. Simon the leper was there. Lazarus was there. Lazarus was the man that Jesus raised from the dead. And Martha, now you remember the story of Martha, right? Martha, the one who's busy about doing all these tasks. Well, Martha is at this dinner that we're talking about in Mark 14. And you know what she's doing? She's doing what Martha does. She is busy about her stuff again, serving away. They're they're reclining at the table, not exactly the posture you and I would take, but it would be uh, laying on your elbow in such a way your feet would be away from the table, and they were getting ready to, to eat the meal, getting ready to dig in. And John tells us, this unnamed woman we're about to read of is Mary. Let's look. While he was in Bethany at the house of Simon the Lever, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume of pure nard. She broke the jar, and she poured it on his head. So, so, so picture the, the, the moment. They're getting ready to eat the meal, the disciples, Lazarus, Simon the leper is there, Martha's running around with the dishes, and then coming in from the side, is Mary walking, probably in my imagination, slowly, um, carrying something in her hands? And I, and I can imagine the disciples seeing her coming and beginning to whisper to each other, particularly when she walked past them, because as she walked past them, there was this, this sweet smell that they kept picking up on. And you could see the disciples kind of elbowing one another and saying, What is she doing? What, what, what has she got? I mean, she's she's carrying this thing so that behind us, you can, you can smell kind of the trail of where Mary has gone. Similar to, and please don't take offense to this, but but I'll use a specific person. My my wife's grandmom really loves perfume. And the kids and I and, and Stephanie have talked many times about how uh, you could show up at the back of Calvary Baptist Church in Lansdale, and you could know that grandmom had been there within the last 15 to 20 minutes, because there was still the aura of the perfume she liked. Or... You know, maybe, maybe, maybe for you, if you have a one-year-old living in your home, there is a certain aura that a one-year-old can leave behind it after it's been in a room for a little while with a filled diaper, right? And so um, this, this perfume probably smelled a lot better than that. But the idea of, of, of as she's walking through the room, leaving kind of a trail of the fumes, the sweet smell of this, this perfume. And as she makes it to Jesus, she opens her hands and she reveals an alabaster jar. Now, now, an alabaster jar, alabaster is the material it was made out of. It's, it's, it's a softer type of stone material that if you were slow and careful and methodical about it, you could shape it and manipulate it into certain shapes. And so what they would do is create jars, um, vases, <laughs> uh, perfume can- canisters. And, and, and so each of these alabaster jars uh, would hold about 12 ounces of perfume. Uh, alabaster was also somewhat, I'm going to use a fancy, translucent. I mean, you could kind of see a glow through it if you held it up to the light. Um, and then and then it was also somewhat porous. And so over time, the sweet smell of the perfume that was in the alabaster would begin to make its way through the porous uh, alabaster. The, it would begin to come out so you could start smelling it just a, just a little bit at a time. And it says that what's inside of this alabaster jar is pure nard. Now, nard was a very valuable uh, perfume that would have been imported from India, and at that time, that is a long way. You're talking today; that's a long ways. You're talking almost 3,000 miles. So so this thing, to get it into your country was a big deal. To own it was a big deal. This stuff was powerful. It's so sweet-smelling. And the consistency of nard was something like an egg white. All right? So it's that, yeah, yeah. So it's it's kind of like that in the, the alabaster jar. Now, not everybody owned one of these. And actually, if people did own these, they usually would pass them down generation to generation, almost like a... A family heirloom many um, believe at the time that what they would do is they would take the alabaster jar and they filled with the the perfume and they would set it it's not really a windowsill it's a little different but they would set it in that type of opening so that way when the when the Sun would shine on it and would begin to heat up and warm up it would have a little bit of a glow to it because it was translucent but then also because of the porous nature of it some of the smell would begin to to drift away from it it was almost like the original glade plug in without the plug in okay so so it was this beautiful smell and, and 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 they would be able to see it regularly and and often and be, just be reminded of its presence so mary walks across the room with this sweet smell escaping from that jar from behind her she arrives at Jesus, and it says she holds the alabaster jar over his head and breaks it. The word broke, or to break, in verse 3, means she crushed it. And upon crushing the alabaster, the the, the nard would have flowed out of that jar, through her hands, onto the head of Jesus, and now that perfume is gone. I mean, there's no putting it back. Once you break that jar, it's it's, it's completely escaped. She's not getting it back at all. It was a very unique moment that occurred uh, during this meal. Look at verse 4. We see the reaction of those who witnessed this. Some were expressing indignation to one another. Why has this perfume been wasted for this perfume might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and been given to the poor. And they began to scold her. So, so understand the response that's happening. They're, they're shocked at what they just witnessed. It says they had indignation inside of them. They were irate and enraged. What a waste. I can't believe she dumped all this over him and, and all over the floor. What were you thinking, Mary? Think about Mary's response. Think about Mary, just for a minute. I mean, It's not the point of the text, but I, but I think it's important we engage the story this way. Think, think about Mary. Mary, who has now sacrificed a great amount. Mary, who has done something that she thought was great, and then she just gets piled on for it. Have you ever had that happen? Have you ever done something that you thought was just kind of, hey, it was, it was pretty special, and then just got criticized every which way? Because you didn't do it exactly right. Think about it this way. A little child draws their first Thanksgiving turkey, right? They follow their fingers, and they, they put a couple things on, do a couple colors, and they walk into the kitchen to show Mom because they're so happy. Mom, look what I drew! And Mom takes it, and she instantly begins analyzing it and critiquing it. Well, you know, your fingers weren't spread far enough, and you know what? The color pattern that you used makes no sense, and that nose, man, that nose is far off, kid. You should do better next time, and then crumple it up and throw it away. Much like that little child, I think that's how Mary probably felt. I think that's how, how Mary felt. They challenged her. Why didn't you just sell it so we could give the money to the poor? After all, look how much good it could have done. And, and, and now, honestly, they're not wrong. I mean, you, you could have sold that perfume for 300 denarii, which in our terms doesn't mean a whole lot. Just think about it this way. That's a year's wages for a common worker. So so they're not wrong. They could have done much good with the money that they made on the sale of that perfume. Now, just a side note, not going to spend a lot of time here, but just a side note. John chapter 12, the the parallel story to this, tells us that Judas Iscariot is the one who made that comment, we could have sold it and given it to the poor. And then John gives us a little insight that Judas was the treasurer of the disciples and he kept the money bag. And if they would have sold the perfume and kept all that money in there, well, Judas was known for taking just a little bit for himself each time. So maybe his his uh, motivation wasn't as pure as it might have seemed at first. It's interesting. You get to the the, the end there of um, verse five, and it's it's kind of a short sentence. It's the last phrase, and they began to scold her. That that that. I think in our mind, we think of somebody standing over, shaking your fingers at somebody. But in the original Greek language, what that means is they they could no longer speak. They were so angry and so frustrated that (sighs) there's... The the same word is used for a horse snorting. (laughs) It's not very attractive. But that's... You've got nothing else. I, I, I... That's how angry they were. That's how angry they were because Mary sacrificed this. And then let's look at Jesus and how he responds. Verse 6. Jesus, upon seeing their indignation, and listening to them scold her, listening to them grunt and growl, responds. Verse 6. Leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She's done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you, and you can do what is good for them whenever you want, but you don't always have me. She's done what she could. She's anointed my body in advance for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Jesus steps into the middle of some very angry disciples and a probably a very confused Mary. And he says, Stop! Why why are you doing this to her? This is this is for me. I mean the, the, the poor, the poor will always be here. I won't. Now, 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 that does not excuse our responsibility towards the poor. I've heard people use that verse be like, see, Jesus says the poor will always be here, and they're always going to be a problem, so we shouldn't worry about them. Now, that's not what Jesus is saying here. But I think what Jesus is doing here is addressing what, what is the idea of much of our culture when we ask them, who do you say Jesus is? So who do you say Jesus is, culture? Well, he's the great caretaker of the poor. We need to go and do likewise. And, and let, let me be completely sincere. Caring for the vulnerable, serving those less fortunate in our community is one of the most incarnational ways we demonstrate our faith. Incarnational is just a fancy word for how we flesh it out. It's one of the most pure ways we flesh out our belief in who Jesus Christ is and understanding of what he did for us, isn't it? It's a picture of the gospel. When we serve other people who can't earn our service, who, who don't deserve our service, when we come alongside them just because we value them, because they are created in the image of God, because we view them with, with, with dignity, because they are fellow men and women, when we come alongside them and serve them, that is a beautiful picture of the gospel. Jesus Christ came to us. To serve us in a way that we could never deserve to be served, we could never earn to be served, and yet He came alongside us and did that. And we've been given what we don't deserve, what we couldn't possibly earn. And, and so, our service to those less fortunate, those our service to those who are more vulnerable, man, that, that that is something that we should be doing because it is a beautiful picture of the gospel. So we must be generous. We must be helpful. We must be serving other people. Jesus isn't discounting that service. But his point is this. You're worried about doing things in my name. But I'm standing right here. What are you going to do with me? Yes, do all that. But right here, right now, in this moment, you can be so busy about doing all these other things. But I'm right here. So I think this is Jesus even speaking to our culture today. Jesus was such a good man. We should serve the poor. Yes, we should. Yeah, yeah, but stop for a minute. Who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? I'm standing right here. You will have the poor forever, but you only have this moment right now. What are you going to do with this moment? And Jesus tells us how how perfectly priceless this gift is is that she gave she has done what she could that's verse eight she has done what she could if you literally translate the greek there it says what she had she did she held absolutely nothing back why why did mary hold nothing back because she gets it because she doesn't just know about jesus she knows jesus how how did mary end up getting it and no one else. How is Mary different than the disciples? Well, that's not too difficult to figure out, is it? If you're familiar with your Bible, then you most certainly would be familiar with a story that's found in Luke chapter 10 as Jesus goes to the home of Lazarus and and his two sisters Mary and Martha are there. Martha is busy about serving. She's taking care of Jesus and probably his disciples as well. <clears throat> excuse me so so she's busy about serving and Mary is nowhere to be found I mean Martha's slaving over the stove Martha's making sure the dishes are clean Martha's bringing up the food she's taking care of all these things and Mary is nowhere to be found where is Mary she's she's sitting at the feet of Jesus and she's listening and that infuriates Martha and Martha comes to Jesus and says hey Jesus little help here could you tell Mary to get up and help me Jesus says, no, you're you're so lost in the work, Martha. But Mary has chosen the right thing. So, So how is it that Mary gets it when everybody else seems to have missed it? Perhaps it's all that time she spent at Jesus' feet. She let it all sink in and instead of it being like a teaching to her, instead of it being a class to her, she knows him. And she focused on him. And so in this moment, in this story, she gave everything that she had to give. And as a reward for her her knowing Jesus, as a reward for her sacrificing so very much, Jesus says, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, her story will be told. And this morning... We're part of her reward. Almost 2,000 years later, we're talking about her gift to Jesus. So what's the point? What's what's the point? I want to be careful to draw a clear distinction between what some would make the point to be and what I want to make the point to be this morning. There's value in what over here, but I want to focus over here. So so just bear with me just for a moment. Mary, Mary obviously listened when the disciples hadn't listened. Mary, Mary walked away from time spent with Jesus with more than just a general name recognition. Hey, that's Billy Joel. Much more than that. It was, it was more than just an understanding of what he had come for. She genuinely knew him, and she loved him. So, so why did she make such a sacrifice? Uh, although everybody around her viewed her act as being over the top, as being way too much, She knew this. Jesus loved her. And he came to rescue her. And so when it came right down to it, she couldn't possibly give too much. Because she knew Jesus the way we're supposed to know Jesus. So so one application over here that I'm just going to mention. Too much is never too much (laughs) when you know who Jesus is. Too much is never too much when you know who Jesus is. And Mary lived this life of generosity. She demonstrated extreme generosity in this moment... Because she knew who Jesus was. So, so listen, my fear as I read this passage, as I read this story, as I consider Mary, my fear, uh, isn't that we aren't a generous people. And so I don't want to make that as our main application from this story. I, I think we are a generous people, and I commend you for your generosity. The food pantry is going amazing. We, we certainly need more food, but praise God for that. And, and, and man, I, am thankful for the faithful giving of his people, of God's people. That's, that's great. But that, I, I don't want to make too much of this this point. Too much isn't too much at all when you know who Jesus is, although that's a very valid point here. My fear isn't that generosity aspect. My fear is that much like the men who followed Jesus, much like the the disciples who gave up everything to be with him, who left well-established jobs, who walked away from potential riches, whose families began to question them because of their their dependence and loyalty to Jesus and, and spending time with him, my fear is that much like those men who got lost in the busyness of it all, in the stuff that could be done, you and I can do the same. My fear is that we allow ourselves to get lost in the busyness instead of getting lost in Jesus Christ. Instead of getting lost in your all in all. So, so if this time of pause has been teaching me anything and, and I'll be completely honest, because my wife's gonna be watching this, I have not learned this, I'm learning it. That's a very different thing. But I, I think the thing that I'm learning most is that I um, <clears throat> have the tendency to get lost in the doing. To get lost in the, the busyness. But instead of the doing, what I need to learn is to be lost in being. In, in, in being His. And, and so church, let me encourage you Get lost in who he is right now. Let let your gaze fall on the cross. Wrap your head around how much Jesus loves you. Consider the gift of God for you. that, That while you were a sinner, still in ultimate rebellion against him, shaking your fist in his face instead of writing you off and turning his back on you. God loved you and sent his son. Get get, get lost in the fact that Jesus is your rescue. That he is your redeemer. that He is your savior. Who, who, Who do you say Jesus is? Don't give a textbook answer. Don't give a textbook answer. Who is he for real? How does his heart beat? What is his passion? What does he love? How does he care? How does he comfort? How does he come alongside you? So so who do you say he is? Do you know him? Not know about him. Do you know him? Church, I promise you, when you get to know him, it's amazing. He's more than enough for what you need today, tomorrow, and for all of eternity. Let's know him like Mary knew him. Would you pray with me? Father, it's only because of Jesus I can call you Father. Lord, I'm grateful and thankful that in my sin that you didn't turn your back on me. Instead, you came and rescued me from it in Jesus Christ. And Lord, I'm sorry for being so focused on the things that I need to do that I forget to just sit and be for a while. Lord, I ask as as we're all experiencing a change in routine, um, but I ask and pray that each and every one of us would purposefully and intentionally take the time to sit at your feet, to listen to your words, and to know you. God, not to know about you, but to truly know you. Father, may we come to the end of this momentary affliction that is called coronavirus. And when we get to the end, God, I ask that we would be men and women, young men and young women who are passionately in love with their Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his good name I pray. Amen.